From the beautiful Art House Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga, and we have another great episode today uh, with my friend Dennis Parker, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dennis in a minute. Uh, but tonight, maybe an hour ago, I was over at a neighbor's house celebrating the birthday of a dear friend. Uh, there were five guys. We were sitting on the back porch. I was the youngest by about 10 years. So these are dear friends and um, kind of my older brothers here in Nashville, just amazing dudes. We've walked through a ton of life together. We got to chatting tonight about what we've learned as we've gotten older, and I mostly just sat and listened because at 40, it's nice to be the young guy. Um, But eventually, they kind of summed it up to this. Uh, The question really is to be content or to not be content. That's probably the biggest factor in whether we enjoy our life or not. Gratitude versus these three dark words, I deserve better. I can't wrap this up with a bow. We literally just came from having this chat. Uh, I just wanted to share it because it was so good and I can't stop thinking about it. Um, And honestly, it's probably as good of a segue as any to introduce you to today's guest, Dennis Parker. And where do you start with Dennis? This guy, just the list of descriptors is about a mile long. He was a seven-year-old banjo champion. Uh, Now he plays guitar with Ricky Skaggs, who's the mayor of Bluegrass. So you know that he's just a beast of a musician. He's a super, super sweet guy. Uh, He also got out of jail a few years ago, and he would tell you that he's an alcoholic. More than anything, he would tell you how Jesus, through the kindness of some incredible people, has changed his life. And this is a just powerful story with some pretty high highs and some pretty low lows. This is about as real as it gets. There's a lot to this conversation. And honestly, I'd like you to think as you listen, If there's anybody in your life who also needs to hear it, it just feels like one worth sharing. Dennis is putting out his first record in a long time. Um, It's called Under the Air Conditioning Unit. It's so good. We're going to end this episode with a song from it. Once you get to spend a little bit of time with Dennis, you are not going to want to miss that. I'll fill you in about that a little more at the end. But first, I want to tell you another story that's worth sharing. And this is about Gilbert. He and his fiancée, Julia, are from Uganda. And they're about to get married but they don't want wedding presents. They want you to sponsor a child just like Gilbert was sponsored. Yeah, that's actually a decision that I made with my fiance because we we felt like compassion has really given us so much and we we actually made from compassion. So we're like, compassion connected us, so why not give back to compassion? So So what was Gilbert's life like as a child that he needed compassion to come in and help? Well, I was born in a family so poor. The poor called us poor. The poor called them poor. And I have seven siblings. I'm the ace born, the youngest. And so being born in such a family, I was so hopeless. You can imagine my whole family survived on less than one dollar a day. We couldn't even afford a bowl of rice. The seventh of eight kids, and they couldn't afford a bowl of rice a day. You know, my, I had seen six of my siblings drop out of school and I thought I would be another school dropout. And so life, like life at a young age was, you know, was a, a daily struggle for me and my, my family. So this guy, so poor, the poor called him poor, doesn't want gifts for his wedding. What kind of gifts do you get at some point in your life that change you this way? My, the best gift that I ever received came through when I was seven years of age, when I got connected to Compassion International. And ultimately, I got to have a sponsor with Compassion International, and the sponsor would you know, write to me letters. And I remember through the sponsorship, Compassion provided the, the first mattress that my family ever held. The first mattress in his family. And you can imagine one mattress in a family of, eight children plus mom and dad, who, who sleeps on this mattress. So my family made a decision that whoever felt sick would be the one to sleep on, on this mattress until when I was old enough to be trusted with the only treasure that my family ever held. So I would say the gift of sponsorship is by far the greatest gift that I have ever actually received, if not only in my childhood, 
but in my entire life. That is amazing. Now, beyond a mattress, what was it like to be sponsored? My sponsor would write to me letters and would tell me that Gilbert, we love you. Gilbert, God has great plans for you. And those are the kind of words that I never had from my community. I would hear my community telling me that Gilbert, you'll never amount to anything in life. Gilbert, you are you are failure. But these words of encouragement from these letters helped me to pick the broken pieces of my life. I'm really grateful like, that I got to, to have a sponsor who would encourage me. That is beautiful, isn't it? But uh, I got married and we got wedding gifts and uh, you probably did too. Um, why don't you want them? So a physical wedding gift, like what do you do with a physical wedding gift? Maybe use it for one year and then after one year and then you trash it the following year and get a new thing. But I wanted this to be more of a kingdom building thing. And compassion releases children from poverty in Jesus' name. I don't know where I would be if it wasn't the sponsorship. So why not be a part of what God is doing and create an opportunity for others to transform a life just like the way my, my life was transformed. So friends, sponsorship through Compassion International costs $38 a month. I paid that much to park at the airport this weekend. So you need to know this. Compassion sponsorships are one-to-one. That means your sponsorship dollars, they go directly for the care of the specific child you sponsor, like Gilbert. They take a holistic approach to child development. They believe in meeting the physical and mental and emotional and educational and medical and spiritual needs of each child. It's everything from medicine to learning to read to a mattress for your family. We just heard from Gilbert. Compassion sponsorship was the greatest gift in his whole life. The words that his sponsor wrote to him, they were life-changing. And you, Pivot listener, you can do this for a child. Now, Each child attends the Compassion program at least three times a week. And there, every child is known and loved, and they're exposed there to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So please visit Compassion.com slash The Pivot for more information. And please do use that link. Compassion is partnering with us to help bring you The Pivot. And when you visit through that link, Compassion.com slash The Pivot, it helps the podcast, and far, far more importantly, it helps to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. So please visit Compassion.com slash The Pivot and sponsor a child today. And now here's my conversation with Dennis Parker. And I, I became kind of the, the prodigy around Huntsville of, of, you know, the real young six, seven-year-old banjo player. Really? Uh, Smithville, you know, the, the big bluegrass contest yeah. they have here in Smithville. I won the banjo contest when I was seven. I mean, I, I took to it like really easy in which, you know, I, I talk with, uh, Jeff Taylor about it cause he's a very similar story about, you know, when God gifts you in something, uh, you really can't take any credit for it. Mm-hmm. Things just kind of made sense to me and whatever was given me, I just kind of absorbed it and took it. Uh, and you know, through the years I've, I've worked on, on my craft a little bit. I'm not near as good as what I should be because I, I hadn't spent that much time, but a lot of what I've got, I've, I've just, I've taken what God's given me and I, yeah. you know, I probably wasted the rest of it. Hmm. You know, I, I, I took to different instruments and, and my dad took me to bluegrass contests. That's all I did when I was a kid. Yeah. I remember him pulling up in a camper and, you know, one day he never talked to my mother about what car we're going to drive or, you know, he just showed up. Like I remember him showing up in a Winnebago and all of a sudden we became campers. And then (laughs) the next thing you know, we're, we're, we're running around the country going to bluegrass contests and, you know, he's entering me all those contests and, and, uh, I got bored. I was, I was a guy that got bored with, playing the banjo and I, hmm. I I picked up the guitar and 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 fooled with it and, and uh I ended up uh, picking up a mandolin one day and just kind of things just kind of made sense to me and I I went with it and my dad wanted me to play the fiddle so I ended up being like a a multi-instrumentalist that uh I like how old 
Oh, I was eight, nine. Holy cow. Yeah. I was, yeah, I was kind of, and I was entering all the bluegrass contests and, and, uh, and, uh, were you winning? Can I ask? Were you winning because you were a cute kid playing a banjo? Were you? Was it? Like, was it sometimes like other probably, kids, or was it like? No, I was. I was. No, you I were was competing big... against adults who were getting schooled by an eight-year-old. Yeah, that's brutal. Yeah, and I remember the first time when I won Smithville. It was a, you know, it was a big. You thing. won the whole competition. I won the bluegrass banjo contest. <laughs> you know? And I, and, you know, and I, I, I figured remember, it was like a kid's vert. Like, Lord, no, it was the, uh, it was, it was the. Uh, so you be guys who are eighty years old and playing. Oh their man, whole lives. I was not liked, and I didn't realize that I wasn't liked until uh, you know the last few years. There's guys that live around Huntsville that tell me says. They used to show up at these things and they'd say, oh, the redheaded stepchild here. Here we go. Just might as well put your instrument. I, I had no idea these people were talking yeah. so ill about me. But but it was, you know, I, I get it. So what does that look like in like into high school? I was involved in church. Uh, my mom and dad were really involved in uh, in the Baptist church. And uh some of that, I, it was frowned upon, the uh, musical instruments inside, the, especially the fiddle and the banjo and stuff. It was just something that not everybody played, and my dad was just adamant about, you know, praising the Lord with all strings, instruments, and stuff. Mm. And it's amazing in the church how the differing opinions on, on people about whether to do it and whether it's righteous or whether it's not. And, and somehow, uh, I don't know, I was I was able to like go on youth trips and take my banjo or take my my guitar and and entertain folks. I, I just have one of these personalities. I I just like I like yeah. being the entertainer. I like to make people laugh. I like to tell stories. And part of that come, a lot of that comes from my mother. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So at some point you're playing music for a living. You're out with Leanne Womack. You're playing. That was years and years. Okay. Years so how did later. you, how did you get to being, how did I make the transition? Well, from, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that there's sort of two stories I think that are happening at the same time. There's you getting into that world, but then there's also getting into the, okay. Yeah. Drinking. Know, I, what does that all look like? I got you. I had some opportunities to uh, play with a, a group up in uh, the Fort Payne, Rainsville area. Yeah. And they had been, uh, they were, like playing regularly on the Grand Ole Opry. They were a, kind of an unknown family band, but they had worked in with, with some people at the Opry, and they did regular things. They were kind of a no-threat uh, kind of a group that, that just should <laughs> kind of come in there from time to time. And uh, right when they had those opportunities, uh, one of their members wasn't going to be able to fulfill some of their stuff. And so they had found out about me, and, uh, and the next thing you know... I'm moving to Rainsville, Alabama, playing with this this group, and I was working in a sock mill, and that was my first sock gig. Mill. I was working in a sock mill. I was working in a textile industry, hmm. and through the years, I mean, I ended up getting an opportunity to go with uh, Jeff and Sherry Easter, yeah, uh, gospel group. They had heard a demo that I'd done for a guy named Michael Purrier. Um, Michael Purrier. Yeah, he did a, a he wrote a song called "The Missing Piece." And I, I I sang that song and it got in the hands of Jeff Easter and hmm. and he just calls me and uh, you know just hires me and so I, I started on the road with Jeff and Sherry and I I was there for about a year and a half um, and I got really disenchanted in gospel music I just got you know I saw stuff that I probably shouldn't have seen I saw uh, I don't know in my mind it was that. Or, you know, what I was seeing was folks selling Jesus. Mm. They really didn't mean what they were. And I'm not saying anything against Jeff and, Jer Jeff and Sherry. Jeff and Sherry are the real deal. But uh, we played a lot, of, a lot of places with a lot of different groups. And I just saw a lot of stuff, and I saw a lot of hypocrisy. And that was, that was a real period of me really kind of stepping back in my faith and thinking, Maybe they, maybe this thing ain't real, you huh. know. Maybe maybe Jesus really isn't real, you know. Cause uh, why would he allow this stuff to go on? And I was really pointing fingers at a lot of people. Hmm. I ended up so exhausted with gospel music and so disenchanted, I picked up my stuff and I quit and I went home and I went back to work in the textile industry. Really? I went back boarding socks. 
and I and I thought I'd never play again. And I was, and I ended up leaving the textile industry. I went and I was working in a steel fabrication plant for mm-hmm. a while. I was building a house. I was married at the time. Okay. And I was living in a trailer and building this house. I had bought this, you know, acreage. And I was out hanging insulation, and, and uh, uh, my wife came out and said, uh, there's a guy named Ricky Skaggs on the phone for you. Uh, and I'm, and she had no idea who he was. And I'm like, yeah, uh, well, tell him to call back later, you know. You, know, you were that idea. done? I, no, I was like, that's not Ricky Skaggs. Oh, okay. And she said, he wants to talk to you. Uh, and I said, that's not Ricky Skaggs. She said, I don't know who Ricky Skaggs is. Just take the phone. So I so I answered the phone, and of course, you know Ricky Skaggs. You hear that voice once, and it's like, this is really Ricky Skaggs, and what in the world are you calling me for, you know? <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine that I had met out in uh, gospel music, he used to play with uh, Gold City. He was playing with Ricky at the time. And, uh, you know, Ricky told me, he says, I've gotten your number from our our, your friend Mark, and he says, uh, you, uh, you'd be a great addition. Uh, you know, we're going to be playing here in Georgia sometime soon. It's not far from where you live. Why don't you come and audition? So I did. So I went and auditioned, and I took all my instruments, took my banjo and my fiddle and mandolin and guitar and got the job. I was there. So this was playing. the Kentucky Thunder Day. Kentucky Thunder Day. This is right around, he was doing country shows at the time. Yeah. So I was in his country band. And then he was making a transition. Bill Monroe had passed away, and he felt like he needed to get back into bluegrass. And so I was part of his bluegrass band also. Wow. And he was doing the Bluegrass Rules record. And so I did the Bluegrass Rules record with him. And uh, I don't know, man. I just, I had a wayward spirit, man. I just, I mm. felt like there was something else out there. And I just, you know, I was thumping arch top, and I was playing a few or I was singing a little bit of harmony, but I just didn't feel like I was contributing much there. And uh, so I wanted to go out and sow my oats. And by George, I sowed my oats all right. I was with Joe Diffie. I, I played with Tracy Lawrence for a number of years. Um, ended up divorcing. Uh, and after my divorce, I really... Man, the country music realm and in the area that I was in, man, it's all free booze and and women, and it was uh, it was a playground out there, and I I took well advantage of it, and uh, I spiraled completely down, and uh, you know I, I'm reminded of it all the time. Uh, I, I remember hearing as a kid the line, uh, you know, sin will take you farther than you ever want to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay and cost you more than you ever want to pay. I had it really good as a kid, and, I, and a lot of people looked at what God had given me and, and thought, you know, he's going he's gonna to do something. He's going to amount to something. And uh, man, did I ever prove him wrong. You know, mm-hmm. I, I went down a path that it was just, I, I couldn't function anymore. I just lost hope. I lost hope in life, and I was just trying to survive, and I didn't know how to do it, and I was lost. And I did not have God to lean on, because I felt like, you know, if God was really there, he really didn't want to have anything to do with me. And and uh, so I, I just transitioned from one gig to another, and each gig, I could progressively, my drinking got worse, mm-hmm. uh, my life got worse, uh, my living situations got worse. My finances got worse. And it was just, that's where I ended up. I ended up down and out. Hmm. So. Can I, can I ask, wh- what does down and out look like in a practical sense? I mean, Well, you know, it, it's different from everybody else. I mean, everybody else, every alcoholic has their own story. Sure. But for me... I was not dependable anymore, so Nashville had given up on me. My my phone stopped ringing. The gigs dried up. Uh, the word got in. Man, it's such a shame. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you know he had such a gift, and and it's just such a shame where where he is. Or you just didn't know where I ended up. He was just gone. 
just one day I was there, and then everybody's like, whatever happened to Dennis? And you know how this town is. Man, Nashville's like, man, people come here and they leave just as quick as they come. Yeah. You know, if, if things aren't right uh, or, or the opportunity, it doesn't. Uh, and you wonder where that guy went, but you also really need a guitar player tomorrow. Yeah, and you don't care. And can you do it? Great. Yeah. Now and we I got and, a new guy. And it's amazing uh, the friendships that you have uh, in, in music. A lot of times they're just fair weather friends. They're for however we can use each other. And that's pretty darn sad, I, I think. Um, you don't really look at the person; you look at the ability. And that, and for for a lot of times, I really have centered, and it was a complex. I centered my worth on what I could do, and when I wasn't given those opportunities anymore, uh, I wasn't worth anything. I, I was, I was, I was done. So I ended up uh, back in Huntsville, taking squirrely jobs. I worked at Red Lobster from time, you know, for for a period. I uh, I I painted, I painted apartments, but uh, I, at this point, I became a full time drinker. Mm. Professionally drinking uh, in Huntsville was probably seven or eight good years <laughs> of just not really having a job. Uh, going to jail, I started going to jail a little bit. Back when I was in country music, uh, it was with Tracy Lawrence, and I first started going to jail there. Uh, DUIs, you know, uh, just delinquent behavior. Uh, I got arrested in, uh, in in Lebanon. I got arrested in Bedford County, uh, coming home from a session one day. Uh, uh, Christmas Eve, I got locked up on Christmas Eve. That was a oh. that was a dandy that was a dandy Christmas. Um, I was living with this girl at the time. Uh, she bailed me out of jail. I uh, mean, it just—it's just that spiraling down. Because yeah. uh, once you start getting arrested, you and you don't change some habits, it just gets worse. Uh, and and my girlfriend at the time, uh, she had enough of me. She got fed up with uh, enabling me, kind of putting me up. So uh, I ended up living with a friend in Atlanta for a while, which that made it worse. Uh, I just got worse and worse. I had a friend uh, named Cindy that literally came to Atlanta and picked me up because she knew how miserable I was and how down I was. She just wanted to help. Hmm. And uh, she came back, uh, and I I lived at, at her place for a while with her family. And I knew I couldn't stay there. I just couldn't, you know? So I made up this cockamamie story, like I was going to, I got a job on a cruise ship, all right? And I left, I, and, and she, I, so, I told her that I was, I was going to get, yeah, it was a big fabricated lie because she was really would worry about me. And I, uh, she took me to a Greyhound station and I pleaded with her you can't watch me get on a bus. And I made her leave. I started walking, and I became homeless. That was the first time that I was homeless. Oh. So that's where my drinking got. I was living behind a bush on Clinton Avenue for a while. Oh, I had a, the I Costco had a, you talk about on I the had record. a bag. I had a, a Takamini guitar. Yeah, I, I, I walked eventually to a district over in Costco, Starbucks, and I had an old iPhone, an iPhone 4, and I could tie into the Wi-Fi, and I was, I was keeping up the lie with the only person that really uh, gave, a, gave a darn about me. So you were was texting from the, acting yeah. like you were on a like cruise ship. Like I was ship. on a cruise ship. You, you know? were kidding. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a, <laughs> but I was living there. It it was a, a a short amount of time that I was homeless, but yeah, it was it was not good, and uh, I ended up somehow getting in touch with a friend, the only friend that I knew in that area that I used to do sessions for over at Sound Cell Studios, and uh, he I I went by his studio and I talked to him, and I remember him asking me, he said, "Do you do you have a drug problem? Do you have an alcohol problem?" No, no. And he believed me. Hmm. 
and he had a rental house that he let me stay in. And I was so delinquent. I had an opportunity to really get my stuff together, and I wouldn't do it. I, I just couldn't stop drinking. I couldn't do it. I, I, and I didn't really have a reason not to drink. It, that was one of the biggest things. Hmm. What do you mean by that? You didn't have a reason not to drink? I just didn't feel I had a, a future. I had no hope. I had absolutely no hope. Everything that I had accomplished in life or w was good in my life was in my past. And I never saw hmm. any future. I didn't think that anything, I, I, don't, I didn't think that I could get any kind of semblance of a life back. So uh, I gave up. I just hmm. gave up. And I didn't know any different. I didn't know how to hope. All I knew to do was drink, and that's and, and what I was really trying to do is kill myself. But I was too much of a coward to kill myself. So I was trying to kill myself the only way I knew how, and that was I was going to drink myself to death. Wow. Yeah, it was. It's it's man. This is so cheerful, isn't it? It's <laughs> such a cheerful conversation. No, it's so, but it's real, man. I mean, this is this is real. It's is real. It, yeah. I started working at this guy's place, though. Okay. Uh, he he what has. What that look a, like? What? Well, he he had a a, a little. Uh, he had a, a like a strip mall kind of place that it was a kind of a he it was a wedding venue, an entertainment district that he was he was he was building, and he wanted me to be a part of that. And and uh, there were times that I think he thought that I was straight, but I was proving myself more and more undependable mm. and um i don't know i had i had my my parents uh my mother was um had passed away and my dad had pretty much given up on me he'd seen enough of me that he didn't want to have anything to do with me mm. my sister loved me unconditionally but i don't think she knew how to really help me so I was kind of distanced from all of that. The only person I had was this friend Doug and Cindy. And Cindy Who, would. Did she still think you were on a boat at this point? No, I had I had somehow created another lie to let her know that it didn't work out, and I I came back, and that's when I was living in this place. So, and she she couldn't you know she she's a question person, and so I never could fully answer her truthfully because I did just didn't want to I didn't want to uh I didn't want to fess up to any of these lies but I was a habitual chronic liar mm. uh because I wanted you to think the best of me I was too fearful of actually telling people how messed up I really was so and I get you know a lot of this brother I know it sounds a lot of scattered but a lot of this is really fuzzy uh, yeah. A lot of the time period, a lot of the events, a lot of the stuff that went on is really fuzzy. I ended up with my dad's truck, which I still don't know how I had, you know, and I was going over to my friend Cindy's house and I wrecked in mm. right in front of her house. And that was the last time I went to jail. It was July 31st. I, I remember that. Wow. I didn't realize, but that was a, the start of a, of, a, of my new life, mm. and I, I I thought it was over. Yeah. But. Well, okay. I want to. I want to. I want. Yeah. I got one question for you before we get to the start of a new life because okay. I really want to hear about that. Right. In your record, you talk about getting arrested that final time, and that you didn't get something about the bail because they wouldn't give it to you because you were a runner. Yeah. And and. And so I, I'm on a big Western kick right now. The last couple of years, I've been reading Western books like crazy. Oh yeah. And um, and just thinking about the idea of like outlaws running from the law, like in in the American imagination, that's a cool, great movie, right? That's a great story. Right. But then I think about how like it, when my tags are expired, I'm terrified anytime I go through like a, a light, you know? Oh mercy! Lord. I'm like, what? What was it like? Like, how did you end up being a runner? What was it like living under that? Okay, when I first started getting arrested, all right, the first time I got arrested, I was in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Okay. I did not want to face anything. I, It scared me to death to go to court, you know. To, to when, you, when you've got looming charges and you've got the possibility of going to jail, yeah. 
it's it's it can be very very stressful. Well, I ended up my first offense in Murfreesboro. I I just paid for stuff and got out of it. I I ended up going to like a halfway house kind of a treatment center kind of place to serve out some of my required time that I would have normally had to, uh, you know, spent behind bars. They took my license for a matter of time, like, and it was suspended. I had a suspended license. So, uh, so I got used to driving with a suspended license, you know, uh, and I would drive as long as my tie, my tag was, was good. I was driving illegally forever, you know, hmm. uh, and then I went to jail again. You know, I went to jail in Lebanon, and uh, like for how long are we talking? Uh, when I was in Lebanon, I I was in. I, see, it's it's a long story because I mean, I, I I went to Lebanon, and then I'm like like dodging bail bondsmen because I I'd been bail bonded, I've been bonded out, and then I wouldn't show up for court. Uh, and they, so that they were become, literally people after you. They were literally after me, uh, and I. Uh, what is that like? It's it's nerve wracking. I mean, <laughs> I remember, I remember at times I would uh, fall asleep just drunk as a skunk on the couch at my girlfriend's house, and wake up in the middle of the night, and the television would be on cops. And I would see blue lights just like running all through the house. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'd be in the pitch dark and all I'd see was blue lights. And I'm, I was like, oh my gosh, well, they finally got me. You know, my heart would be just up in my, in my, oh. in my throat. And I was constantly just feeling like I, I was going to be, I was going to go back to jail, which I ended up, you know, mm-hmm. back in jail in Levin. And they finally caught me. And I, I spent three, four months there. Okay. When I got out, so and then that, I had then I had probation, yeah. you know, and I, I didn't fulfill my probation, so I was constantly running from responsibility. I didn't want to pay my fines. I didn't have the money to pay my fines. I didn't have a job anymore, so I was I was I was just I was driving illegally. I was always looking behind my shoulder, looking in my rearview mirror, scared to death that I was going to go back to jail, and I just kept going back to jail. They'd let me out. And then I would just, I'd be fearful of all the stuff that I hadn't taken care of. Hmm. So when I finally got arrested, July 31st, yeah. I, had, uh, I had run off on my charges that were from back in 2008 when I got arrested. When was this, there. July 31st, what year? 2015. Okay. Yeah, and I... Uh, I had looming charges from uh, about seven years before that in 2008. They, and they had been searching for me for that long, and I they never caught me. Uh, and you think that stuff just goes away after, you know, several years? Yeah, no, 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 no it doesn't. No, they, they, they know all about you. Yeah. They just can't find you. Uh, so when they do, you get hit with not only... I, I mean, got boom, 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 all I, that stuff. I got I got hit with the severest penalty. It was whatever that I'd agreed to at the very beginning, uh, what they charged me for, and if I didn't fulfill my obligations of probation, then they they were going to uh, come down on with whatever. Which for me, it was six months in jail. Yeah. So I spent six months, and then uh, I had another DUI over top of that. You know, it's three strikes and you're out. And then, then, then it becomes a felony. Yeah. Which I think it's even worse now. But I, I should have been sent down south. Hmm. And for some reason or another, God showed mercy on me, and I only had a DUI one. And so I've just got six months, and I'm sitting in the can, you know, that I'm, I'm calling my friend Cindy up because she was the only one that would really talk to me. Hmm. And she's telling me all this garbage about how God loved me. And that I'm I'm in jail, uh, and and I've actually got a great luxury of being there because I've got no responsibilities, and all I need to do is just get into God's word, and because God had a plan for my life, and that, you know, God uses broken people to really prove His power. All this nonsense, that just I I just you're not telling me what I want to hear. I want your sympathy. I want you to feel sorry for me because I'm over here feeling sorry for myself. And she's just telling me actual truth. Hmm. And I didn't believe it. I didn't believe God loved me. I had no idea 
that he could actually love me because I'd gotten to a place that I just didn't think I mattered anymore. I didn't matter to anybody in Nashville. It didn't matter in music. I didn't matter to my family. And how in the world could I matter to God, you know? Hmm. I don't know. Cindy had done some really cool things before I'd went to jail. She actually started taking me to church. Hmm. And uh, that's where I met some, some cool people that really reached out to me and loved on me despite of me, you know. I, I was going to their church, man. I had a backpack full of booze. I mean, I was I was sitting on the pew with my backpack, and, and in between uh, at, at period, periods, I, I, I was starting to get shaky and sick, and I'd go with my backpack to the to the to the bathroom and 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 get enough and tide me over and drink a little bit just to smooth me out a little bit and iron me out and then go back and sit down and not one of those people in that church ever turned me away or told me don't don't come back hmm. they loved me you know and that, that and I'd had such a bad taste in my mouth for christianity for church for religion just in general and uh, that was the starting point of, of God kind of doing a work even before I went to jail and, and Cindy told me all that nonsense about God loving me and all. So, so well, you say that going to jail then was the start of, of the new life. So Cindy's talking to you on the phone. You've got these new friends from the church. What, how do they react when you get sent back to, to prison? Yeah, that was a, a, a real, uh, you know, don't tell anybody. You know, I didn't want anybody. You know, I'm a habitual liar. Yeah, I, I don't Just want. Tell them I, I went on a cruise ship. I for want. Six I want everybody to see me in the best light. Uh, and it's amazing how much people saw my sin and talked about me behind my back. But I'm still trying to put on a front like it's not really going down the way you see it. I, I remember. I remember people telling me stuff that I did the night before. And tell me, you know, and and I would always be quick to come up with some kind of cockamamie story to prove myself, because what what that really was—that's insanity, you know. How the, I, but I've got to prove to you that I'm not insane, mm -hmm. even though I was, and it's just so 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 sick and twisted. But I I don't know, man. It's like in the record, uh, Cindy went to my pastor and went to my Sunday school teacher, who's a three-star general. That man loved me for some reason. He loved me back when I was in that church. He didn't know anything about me. He didn't know about my past, none of this. But my friend Cindy got the pastor and the general together in a room after I got arrested. And like, we got we to gotta figure something out. What, what do we do? What do we do for him? How do we help him? Hmm. And the general... Knew the district attorney. He called the district attorney, and they had mercy on me. They, uh, they, they, they made it where I could be on work release. So it was. So uh, what does what does that look like? Work release is like uh, when you when you're finally tried. They gave me a job, so they put you in a different little holding area. All the work release people are basically in this one little area, and then they just. They truck you to work every day. So what, what were you doing? What I was working in a Thai restaurant. They gave me, <laughs> they gave me a dishwasher position at a Thai restaurant. So I was going there, and they were so man, sweet people, hmm. lovely, lovely, and and man, the 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 woman that owned the place, she was hard, man. She was a tough little Thai woman. She was just, I was scared to death of her, you know, <laughs> but. They they were very sweet to me, and uh, they didn't believe that I played music, hmm. and I, I they they let a, a friend of mine drop off some instruments at, at at the restaurant, so I was able to play music on the off time. You son, you've just never seen a Thai guy that I I couldn't most of the most of the people there they hardly spoke any English. You know they were all all Thai. And uh, I'd bring the fiddle out and play, and some they would have a big hoot nanny there. They in between, you know, breaks and stuff. It, it I've got some of it on a phone somewhere. Really, I, I, I filmed them just dancing and having a big old time. But yeah, I, I, 
it was a it was a great healing. I got an opportunity to, to do that, and I, I see the grand scheme of what God did, but I didn't realize it at the time. But I was able to get on work release so I could pay my fines off, hmm. and uh, I, I I didn't have a whole lot, and I wasn't making a whole lot, but I was able to pay my fines off in that six months, and I was able to save a little bit of money, because hmm. man, the worst part about getting out of jail. It's not very friendly, you know, to putting you back out on the streets. We have so many repeat offenders is because nobody has anywhere to go. Yeah. You know, nobody has any money. Uh, A drug dealer is going to go back to drug dealing drugs because that's how he can make money. That's the only way he he knows to do because the system doesn't make it where you're able to get out there and and really give Hmm. give a chance. I mean, there's a there's a fine line and, and I. I really don't know what all the answers are, but I just know that God opened up that opportunity mm-hmm. for me. But he had a host of good people in my life that were Christian that looked after yeah. me, gave so me it, good does, does that? How does your drinking play into being in prison? I mean, does that allow you to, to stop drinking? I, I, had, I stopped. I, well, I stopped because I had to, because I, I, I wasn't able to. And, and I, I detoxed. You know, while I was in jail, yeah, and and acted like I wasn't. I, I still, you know, you don't do nothing but lay around there. You know, I'm I'm laying around, and I had high blood pressure, which I actually told them about. If you tell anybody in jail that you have an illness, they look after you. That you're constantly being called by the nurses and checking whatever ailment you have because they don't want you dying in jail. Yeah. Uh, so I, I got monitored a bunch because, because of my high blood pressure. But I never told him I was detoxing. But I hmm. detoxed all on my own. But I had grand plans when I was there. I Initially, I had met a guy that was going to sell me weed when he got out. Because I was going to, I was going to, I couldn't imagine being sober going through life. So I couldn't imagine. Really? These, these, these were my ideas in jail. I really wasn't a good drinker. And I, I, I couldn't do that, but I was going to smoke weed. That, that was going to be my next step. Mm-hmm. So I was basically, I was going to switch seats on the Titanic is all I was going to do, <laughs> you know. But I learned while I was there only through God's word hmm. of the path that God had for me. Uh, daily bread in, in, in the Bible and AA meetings. I went to AA meetings while I was they there. Were in the, there were some in the prison? Twice a month. And even God met me there because uh, first AA meeting I went to, I actually knew one of the guys that had come. Hmm. And I really believe that God sent that guy there for me because he was, he, he had told me, he's told me uh, since, he said, that was going to be my last meeting. That was because I, I saw no results when I went there. He said he'd been going there for years. He'd not seen any real good results from attending those things because and there's jail is just full of liars, man. You know, and they're going to continue the lie, and so you don't see a lot of results of people wanting to change their path. They're just kind of, kind of continuing the same bad behavior over and over again. So you don't see a lot of that. But, but I really do believe God sent that boy there that day to get me in, and I'm still we're still buddies. I, I still lean on him. Then you get out of prison. Yeah. What does life look like for you that day? Do you leave in the morning? Do you leave in the afternoon? They they kick you out at twelve oh one at night. Really? Which is horrid. Yeah. Why? Because they don't want to pay for you for another day or so. They they there's there's money to be made in jails and, and I don't know how all that well, works, but uh, so they 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 got paid for me being there for the next day but they wouldn't have to feed me do any of that kind of stuff oh, wow. so they 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 kick you out at 12 on 1 which i remember uh being there till about 1:30 but my friend that i met there in aa hmm. he he he's the one that came and picked me up really he picked me up that night and he drove me straight to an aa meeting and i spent the night at a, a meeting spot uh, over on uh, on the parkway there in Huntsville, and waited till the meeting started. He, he, he wasn't wow. A, yeah, it was all about okay. It's time to get sober. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. 
it's very very cool. You know, I I I look at it now. It's like, man, why why in the world would you just let me go sleep? You know, but that is not. That's not. Man, you got to deal with it. You got you got. If you want to get sober, if you really want to get sober, if you're done, man, it, it's time to put the work in. But I, you know, my plan was I was going to go into a halfway house. Okay. I was going to go into a halfway house, and uh, after the meeting, that first meeting, they took me to this halfway house. And, buddy, I'm telling you, I, I, I couldn't have done it. I, I, I went there. I looked at the environment. It was, it was rough. I had a panic attack. It's probably the first panic attack I've ever had in my life. Hmm. But I, I knew in my, in my heart, if I'd stayed there, I would, I would drink again. I, I, I would have lost it. When I was on work release in jail, you you got out on Sundays on a day pass. Yeah. And a family from my church picked me up. Uh, mm. David Shrum, he picked me up every Sunday and took me to his house. Well, when I realized I I couldn't go, uh, I could I I I I just knew I couldn't go to this halfway. So I I was basically homeless again. I didn't have anywhere to go. And David Trum opened up his home to me for mm. a little bit of time, about a week, week and a half maybe, until I found a place. And mm. I did find a place. And it was I it's a place that I know God opened up for me. Mm. It was it was about a mile from where I was gonna be working because the Thai restaurant that I worked for while I was in jail, they offered me a position to stay on. Uh, when I got out, because mm. I didn't have any other place to go. And I'm just a musician, man. I don't know anything else to do. That's all I've ever done, you know, pretty much my whole life. Don't have a real serious trade anywhere else. So uh, I, I was grateful. That 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 dishwashing job was uh, grateful grateful to have it. It was, it was not a whole lot of work, but it was just enough to get me a place to live. And keep my phone on, but that was it. And and pay my pay my electricity, but that's how I lived for a good while. And mm. Cindy and I played music a little bit, mm. and I supplemented a little income there. But you're back on the road. Well, how did that happen? How did I get back out on the road? Yeah, I told everybody that I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to play music again. Everybody that I went to meetings with, no, I can't do that. You know. I'm just, I'm, and I was happy. I was happy at the at the restaurant. I was, and um, I don't know. I was, I was, I, I couldn't drive. You know, I hadn't got my license back, okay. so I was riding a bicycle everywhere. I'd drive it to meetings. I'd ride if I had to do grocery shopping. I had these little panniers I had in the back <laughs> of my. I had a little flashlight. This bike is pimped out, son. It's unbelievable. I had little speakers on it and play music and stuff. Dude. And I was coming out of a meeting. Uh, I go to meetings in the morning around 8 o'clock. And I come out of this meeting, and I got a text message from Ricky Skaggs saying, what are you doing these days? I need somebody to help me out for the next couple months to the end of the year. This was right around November 2016. 2016. I mean, okay. I'd just been sober for about 10 months. And I was like really conflicted about it. This is something I, I need to really stand strong on me not going back on the road here, you know, mm -hmm. because that's what I said. You know, I told everybody I'm not going to do it um, because going on the road looks like it looks like me, you know, doing something reckless again, yeah. being out in the Nashville scene and being, you know, go chase after yourself again. Yeah. I went to a guy that I, I value him. I called him up. And he said, well, of course you got to do it, Dennis. You're not a dishwasher. You're a musician. Hmm. Do you not think that God has a plan for you? And I said, well, maybe. I don't know. And I finally come to grips with it. I guess, I guess I'll do it. I'll figure hmm. it out. You know, I'll go fill in this time, you know. This a lot of time, and so I ended up going out from with him for the next couple months and fulfilling to the end of the year, and then there towards the end of December, he said, "Dennis, if you want to come back, you can come back. I, mm. I'd love to, you know. I and and I don't know if this was a compliment or not, but he told me he said, Dennis, I never knew 
how much I missed you until you left. Hmm. I, I, I don't know what that really means. But for some reason or another, it was one of the first times in my life at that point that I knew that I was supposed to be there. And I didn't know why. Um, but I knew that, that God had something for me out there. Mm. And, uh, and, it, and it's not necessarily to be the, the musician and to be patted on the back. But in a lot of ways, I found my job to be an encourager while I'm out there and show, show folks that God is, is bigger than, than what you can ever imagine. You know, mm. and I've been really because I mean out, out with Ricky Skaggs, man, these guys are phenomenal musicians. Oh, yeah, they're 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 the cream Mulvihill of the crop. In that crew at that point, Scott Mulvihill was he a part Scott of Scott was with yeah, yeah. Scott was there at the, at the very you know the very beginning. He he left uh, pretty quickly after I'd gotten there. But uh, man, yeah, I, I mean, just those guys are so good. This this came to me this last week when I got really discouraged about because I get discouraged from time to time. I just do, man. I just get Don't down on myself. I just yeah. think, man, I'm just not good enough. I'm just, what in the world am I doing here? Surrounded by all this, all these guys, man. I'm, I'm, I don't measure up. And but I get excited when these guys play, man. Night after night, I feel like one of the spectators. I, I feel like my God, I, I, I find myself hooting and hollering and. What are you playing? I'm playing band? chunk rhythm, man. I play chunk rhythm. I play some mandolin. I sing. Uh, and I play a little twin fiddles with Mike Barnett, um, from time to time, you know, just a little bit, it's just a little bit here and there, you know, but I, I, I really got this truth this last, uh, the last couple of weeks. I was like, you know why you're so excited when these guys play It's because God gave them that gift hmm. and what you're really doing is praising God. And these guys need to know that. You know, these guys need to know that this unbelievable, beautiful gift they have, so many people want and will never have, you know, and, and that you try to get. And you, you're not, you need to understand that that beautiful thing that you have is straight from God Almighty. And I'm not going to praise you about it. I'm going to praise him for his goodness. And I, I just think that's such a, uh, such a beautiful thing that, 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 that God does, that he shines through people when they sometimes don't even know it, you know. Mm -hmm. But I can see it, and I can, I can credit him for it. I think it's beautiful. Wow. By the way, you're definitely underselling yourself. I'm you're not just playing chunk rhythm. You're a stunning guitar player. I'm a James Taylor lover that I learned how to play a little bit of finger style only from mimicking just about everything that I don't do right on James Taylor. I, I play it the way I think it. I, I, I can do it. I cheat. I'm a biggest <laughs> cheater. I have found ways to cheat. I've even cut a finger off. I've cut the end. The you end have. of look at that. I've cut the end of my middle finger off, and I learned how to play with three fingers for a while, and then incorporated Man, those are the your other. Cording, your cording fingers. Yeah, it it stinks. It was a that was a <laughs> that was a, and that's why my, my Can fiddle. Can you play with that finger? Yes, it's big and fat. It's like a little sausage, but I mean, <laughs> somehow if I've I've learned how to angle it in the right way. That it doesn't inhibit me, but uh, oh but it does on the on the fiddle and the mandolin. I have to really approach those instruments in a in a different way. Yeah, but um, yeah. But what made you want to make this this record under the air conditioning unit? I I walked into the place and it, it you know it's not the it's not in the greatest area, man. I mean I I, I live around other drunks and and, and prostitutes and. And I mean, it, it's it, it, you. You go two, three streets over, it gets a whole lot better. But I, I live in a, in a little rough area, you know. Yeah. My window, I, I look at the high and by. You can see the Bud Light signs, and I, I love neon signs. So it, God knew I, I, I loved that. So He gave me a little view. Uh, but <laughs> when I walked into that place, man, I saw that air conditioner, and you know, I used to have stuff. I built a house in Rainsville, Alabama. And, 
I used to have nice things. I used mm. to have stuff, but I walked into this place and it, and that that air conditioner was the biggest eyesore I've ever seen in my life. It's in this block building. It's just kind of sticking into the wall. The only place my couch could go that I could see was under that air conditioner. I'm trying to make things look better than they are, you know. And this this just ain't fitting into my plan. And but I was grateful to have this place. And the thing that God did through that air conditioner is amazing. I, I remember one day I, I sat in front of, I sat on my couch and I had this musical idea and I'd had this old used iPad that I'd gotten. And I put it out in front of me on the table and I had it on the video and I had the flipped around and looked back at me and I saw me, that guitar and that air conditioner. And I just, I chuckled. I just thought it was funny. I just thought it looked funny, <laughs> you know? And I, and the, and it came instantly to me, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to sing some songs because I wasn't singing. I was washing dishes at Ty Garden. And, uh, I said, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to sing some songs under this air conditioner and I'm going to put them out on Facebook. That's what I'm going to do. And that's what I started doing. And part of it, it was a, sometimes it was funny. Sometimes it was a joke, but it was my life. Hmm. I was literally sharing my life under an air conditioner. And, uh, and I just kept doing it. Uh, God would give me a truth or something or, or you know, uplift me or, or something sad would happen. I'd share about it. I'd, I'd share it. I'd hmm. share it. Under the, and I, and I, I, you know, people, people would react. I don't know, man. It it was it was a document of my life. Yeah. And it and it just kept going and it just kept flowing. And I keep doing it. I still do it, you mm. know. I've got five thousand friends that I don't know on Facebook. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know forty people. <laughs> you know, but I mean, the stuff that I do under that air conditioner, I put it public and and, and folks have found some healing in it. Because uh, it's not all Christian music that I do. I do a lot of hymns, but I share my life. Well, your record's that way. It's all kinds of different songs. Yeah. It is what it is. You know, it's I'm just sharing what God's done to me, and He's He's done for me what I couldn't do for myself. Uh, I I I couldn't get sober. I couldn't imagine not being able to drink or or not drinking. I. People get on to me in the Christian world for saying that I'm an alcoholic because I say it every day. I feel like I'm a better use to God by being an alcoholic and claiming myself to be an alcoholic than I am to be not an alcoholic. Hmm. Because I'm I'm free today because of, of what God's done. But given my own resources, if I went back to that way of life, I would be back in the same situation I was before. So I know, I know where I need to be. And that is one, and most most importantly, sober. Mm-hmm. I can't be the best dentist if I'm not sober and not worry. I have to, I have to not worry and I have to know that God is in control of whoever wants to, or needs this record and wherever he takes it. It's his. It's not mine. I I, I, I listened to your uh, one of your podcasts of, of Carrie Jane when she was talking about stewardship as opposed to ownership. And I'm like, I don't own nothing, man. Hmm. Everything I have, God's given me. And I have to be a good steward of whatever that is. And my heart, most of all, goes out to those people that were ju- that are just like me, suffering, you know, and, and don't know a way out and don't think that God loves them and that they don't matter. In the New Testament, there's a, there's a story about a lady that was, you know, bleeding, you know, and she, she knew that Jesus was coming through and he could heal her. Mm-hmm. If I could just touch his garment, if I could just touch his garment, I'll be instantly healed. And that was a turning point when I read that hmm. because, you know, when, when, when the power came out and when she was healed, Jesus said, who touched me? And everybody's like, what do you mean? Man, look at all these people. 
who didn't touch you, you know? And he said, no, power came out for me. Who touched me? And I really believe that he needed to stare that woman in the face. Because she needed to know that she mattered. She mattered to God. Man, man, if you could ever get to a place that you understand how much you do matter, regardless if you feel it or not, it's a beautiful spot to be. And it ain't nothing that I can do or achieve or make things better for myself by what I do. It's already been paid. Everything's been paid. My worth is in the blood of Christ and that alone. Uh, everything else I have is of filthy rags. The worst part of my record is me being on it. But the story of what God did is the highlight of it all. And that's what can happen if you'll just give it to him. And I, I fought and I ran for years. And when I finally surrendered, God gave me back everything that I lost and more. I actually have a decent guitar. I've never had a decent guitar in my life. And I've got a really good guitar. I've got more than one. Why? <laughs> I, I don't I don't understand where all these blessings from. I I know they come from him, but I that's where sometimes I, I feel so unworthy. It's like, man, I got I don't I don't deserve all this. But I do. Not by what I've done, but by what he's done. And it's 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 a beautiful thing. He forgave me and he restored me. Thank you, Dennis. Guys, Dennis has an amazing new album out. It's called Under the Air Conditioning Unit. It was recorded in his apartment underneath his air conditioning unit. In between each song, he tells part of his story. I've never actually heard an album quite like this. Like, he literally, track one, story. Track two, song. Track three, story. Track four, song. He's a masterful musician and a brilliant storyteller, and it is a great listen. Uh, he actually agreed to share a song with us to close the episode, so stick around and listen to that. Uh, you can also find him at his Facebook page, and he posts songs and stories every week under his air conditioning unit. That's facebook.com slash dennis.w.parker.3, which if you don't remember, you can just literally Google Dennis Parker Musician or Dennis Parker Facebook, and you'll find him. He's just so good. Uh, a couple weeks ago, he actually did my song, Worry, and it is so much better than my version that I'm trying to learn how he played it so I can start playing his version from now on. So Google that, Dennis Parker Facebook. Check out those videos. Check out his record under the air conditioning unit. Also, please visit Compassion.com slash The Pivot and sponsor a child today. It's a great wedding gift for Gilbert and Julia. It is kingdom work, and it will change the life of a child, and possibly yours as well. Compassion.com slash The Pivot. Free a child from poverty in Jesus' name. For info on me and my music, you can go to andrewrosinga.com or everybodypivots.com. Guys, I'm actually probably going to take next week off because we are going on our first family vacation ever. Usually all of our family trips are, I'm going to play some gigs or something, and then the family comes along, they get to hang out, and they vacation, and I work most of the time. And uh, this time we're actually just going to hang as a little crew. I'm so excited. Literally never done this before. And uh, I'm not going to work on the podcast. So there. We'll be back in two weeks and with another incredible guest. Thank you guys for listening today. It is a joy to do this for you. Here's Dennis Parker's song, I'm Done. Now go do something awesome. Life hit me when I wasn't looking it dealt me a card and a play I felt betrayed and forsaken But I've been making the wrong people pay I'm done 
window I spent my last night in that prison Where anger and pride were the bars Hey, I meditate, make a peace with the past And I'm not ashamed of my scars And I know I'm done harboring grudges and nursing old wounds Done clinging to grudges singing the blues I'm done pointing fingers at everyone else I'm taking a long eye look at myself The new day has begun And I know I called up somebody who hurt me We finally settled that score I had a right to be bitter Revenge would have been sweet But forgiveness what ended that war I'm starting to see the big picture These days I'm getting high over that No more killing my pain with a three-day binge That train has run out of track And I'm done I'm done harboring grudges and nursing old wounds Done clinging to grudges singing the blues I'm done pointing fingers at everyone else I'm taking a long eye looking myself Spending more time with the people I love The ones who will cry at my funeral I'm done feeling hopeless, not going there I'm awakening each morning with a smile and a prayer A new day has begun A new day has begun 